Hello. We want to thank you for joining our Living Messiah family by downloading this podcast. We hope it blesses you and enriches your life. We also want to encourage you, uh, if you can, and if your heart is so moved, to support this ministry by going on our website, livingmessiah.com, and donating to help us to put these podcasts in every nation, every place, so we can bring these messages to change lives, to help people grow in the Word of God. Once again, thank you so much for being part of our family. Shalom. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. Open our eyes and our ears to the wonderful things you want to teach us today and show us. We give you glory and praise for leading us as our awesome, wonderful shepherd. In your son, Yahushua's name, we give thanks. Amen. So, Exodus is our chapter, or our book, and we're in 13, and... uh, we haven't switched it over yet. There we go. Okay. So what are we going to talk about today? So we're going to talk, our New Testament portion is uh, in, um, I believe it's Hebrews chapter 9. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that because how many of you know that Paul's words have been misunderstood and I like to get clarity to what is said so that it's, something that's very clear to us, what Paul is meaning. And uh, so we're going to do that. We're going to talk a little bit about our Isaiah chapter 46 portion, and then we're going to dig into uh, our Torah portion. Now, our Torah portion, keep this in mind, our Torah portion is about uh, the theme of these 2022 verses is redemption and the firstborn and Unleavened bread. That's what it's all about in this, the context of what we're talking about. And as we look at Paul's words in, let's just get a little clarity here, in Hebrews 8, 7, if you look in the context of Hebrews chapter 8, what's really being talked about, and also in chapter 7, it's really about the priesthood. What's being talked about here is the priesthood. And so I'm going to read verse 7 for you. It says, for if that first, now I, I grayed out the word covenant because it's not there in the, in the Greek. It's just not there. It is a word inserted by the translators that should not be there. So what first is he referring to? Well, you've got to look at context. Context tells us he's talking about the priesthood. Okay. So if that first had been faultless, there would not have been an occasion to sought for a second. So what is the writer explaining? And this is common, this is actually church commentary. It says he is explaining why the priesthood of Yahushua is superior to the priesthood associated with, and the word old here is not old, the actual word means former. Now, what, what does it mean by former covenant? Well, we're going to dig into that here in a minute. So the writer is explaining, he's explaining why the priesthood of Yahushua is superior, and we're going to dig into the, the whole issue and reasoning of that. If you have comments, keep it on point. Let's keep it, because I know we're getting started late, so let's keep comments short if it's possible. But we do want to learn, and we're going to do our Torah portion in a Darash style, so bear with us as we do that again this week. So Hebrews 8.13 says, When he said a new, covenant's not there again, it was inserted. When he said a new, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete is going old and ready to disappear. Now, why would he say that? 
Well, keep this in mind that just 40 years later, the whole temple and priesthood thing's going to be gone. It's not going to be there anymore. So he's speaking about what's really going to happen because he remember the, the master said, uh, you know, I'll destroy this temple in three days. And so uh, they're thinking about the, the system that is in place is not going to be the one hasn't been working for 2,000 years. So the church thought that he was talking about the old covenant, the old, all the old laws is about to disappear and is growing old. That's not what it's referring to. The word covenant's not even here. The whole context is about the priesthood. And I would, I would submit to you that partly included to that is uh, the temple that was standing at the time, which is obviously going to disappear. Okay. Again, my thoughts. Temple is destroyed. No functioning earthly priesthood. But we know when Yeshua ascended, the heavenly priesthood and heavenly temple is working. It's still there. It's going on. It doesn't cease. So I'm going to read you the rest of the context here. But now he has obtained a more excellent service. Service would mean the service in the sanctuary. And as much as he's also mediator of a better covenant. We're going to talk about what, what is he referring to, what covenant is better associated with the priesthood, which was constituted on better promises. For if that first covenant, and covenant is here, had been fault, I'm sorry, covenant is not here, had been faultless, there's no place to be sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, see the days are coming, says Yahweh, when I shall conclude with the house of Israel and with the house of Yehuda a renewed covenant. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Misraim, because they did not continue in my covenant. And I disregarded them, says Yahuwah. Because this is the covenant that I shall make with the house of Israel after those days, even though he said house of Israel and house of Yehuda in verse 8, here in verse 10 he's only referring to one of the houses. Here's the covenant I'm going to make with the house of Israel after those days, says Yahuwah, giving my Torah in their mind, and I shall write them on their hearts. I shall be their Elohim, and they shall be my people. Because they weren't. He said that they were no longer a people in Hosea. And they shall be by no means teach each one his neighbor and each one his brothers and saying, Know Yahuwah, because they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, meaning the house of Israel, because I shall forgive their unrighteousness and their sin. We're going to find out what word is used here for sin. I will and their lawlessness, meaning Torahlessness, I shall remember no more. So he's quoting this from the Tanakh, from the prophets, right? So again, there's no covenant in the verse, and as stated, it's referring to the priesthood. First is the word former, and we're going to look at the sin word here in just a minute on another slide. Here's three perspectives on how God fulfills. Oh, I wanted to say this. So if we were to presume he's talking about a covenant, you remember how we've talked about, you know, we thought that Paul was talking about how the law was this and the law was that, and we've come to realize that there's more than one law that, that's referenced in the New Testament. There's eight of them, eight different laws that is referenced in the New Testament. So what law is always talked about negatively? Well, it's always about man's laws, man's traditions, the, the things that man's creates, not God's laws. So since there's eight laws, and we've got to be real, we've got to define what one is being referenced each time it's talked about, Shouldn't we do the same thing with the word covenant? If the word covenant was here, which it's not, 
Shouldn't we be con- concerned about what covenant he's referring to? Is he referring to the covenant at, of the rainbow? Is he referring to the covenant at Sinai? Is he referring to the covenant with David? What covenant would he be referring to if he's referring to a covenant? See, we presume he's talking about the covenant at Sinai. But even if he was, it wouldn't be that. I'm going to share with you what I think is another thing that might have been a topic of the day. So I brought this up. Here's three perspectives on how God, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill, how he fulfills his covenant with Abraham. God made an agreement with Abraham in this agreement. He makes the following promises. To make a great nation from Abraham's descendants. To give Abraham's descendants all the land of Canaan. And to make Abraham a father of many goyim. Many ethnos. Okay? So that's the promise. I didn't come to abolish. I came to fulfill my promise to Abraham. Because I told him I was going to bring his kids in. I kicked them out. I've got to bring them back in. I've got to fulfill that promise. Hebrews 8.12, because I shall forgive their unrighteousness and their, ooh, it's the same word we talked about last week. You take this word sin, take it back into the Tanakh, and guess what word it is? It's chatat, which means, as we pointed out, uh, it's related to a sham, uh, which is a guilt offering. It's related to guilt and punishment. And their punishment their guilt and their lawlessness I shall no longer remember. Not sins, even though you would call this guilt and punishment as a, as a result of sin, but it's this punishment and the guilt that's going to be not remembered. Okay, let's take a look at a, a covenant that is associated with the priesthood. Kind of interesting. Numbers 25.12, Therefore, Say, behold, I give him my covenant of peace. Who's he talking about? Who's he referring to here? I'm going to give him my covenant of peace. Phinehas. Yeah. So one of the sons of Aaron, he's going to get a covenant of peace. What's, what is Phinehas' role? What is he? What is, he is, is he just one of the t- tribes of Israel, or is, is he one of the priests? Huh? <laughs> So Ezekiel 34.25 says, I will make a covenant peace with them and eliminate harmful beasts from the land that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. Psalm 55.20 says, He has put forth his hand against those who were at peace with him. He has violated his covenant. One of the four Hivite cities that had made a covenant of peace with, with Joshua and the elders of Israel, thus they escaped annihilation. So this is the, 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 the Hittite cities that had made a covenant of peace. What does the Lord say when you approach a city? What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to give them what? Terms of peace. Ter- yeah, terms of surrender, terms of peace. Dig into this idea of covenant of peace here a minute. Could it be that one of the things that Yeshua did was also to establish a covenant of peace with the house of Israel? Is that a remote possibility? Let's look and see. Jeremiah declares that the coming glorious messianic age will be based on a new covenant. Isaiah describes this coming time as a new exodus. 
Ezekiel, by contrast, uses the phrase covenant of peace to describe the new relationship that the coming Messiah will bring to the house of Israel. In Ezekiel 34, 23-24, the prophet focuses the coming shepherd imagery onto the promise of a Davidic messianic ruler, obviously fulfilled by the coming of Messiah. Immediately after the Davidic connection, God promises to establish the covenant of peace. The critical role of the coming Davidic shepherd king in establishing this covenant of peace is strongly implied here in Ezekiel. So if the Messiah was understood in Ezekiel that he would come and establish a covenant of peace with the house of Israel, because the house of Israel is predominantly talked about in Ezekiel, like ten times more than the house of Judah. So if the, the Messiah, the shepherd, the, the coming king is going to come and establish the covenant of peace, why? Why would he need to establish a covenant of peace with us? I'll share with you some thoughts. Verse 6 uh, says, But now he has obtained a more excellent, this is in our Hebrews uh, portion, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he's also mediator of a better covenant. This word covenant here is this Greek word. It's the service or ministry of the priests relative to the prayers and sacrifices offered to God. So it's directly, I'm sorry, the word ministry is this word. It's directly now tying it to what's going on by the priesthood. Just like we said, that's the context of what's going on in Hebrews. The word covenant is a testament or will. The covenants to which the promise of salvation through the Messiah was annexed. Salvation is the fulfillment of the divine promises annexed to those covenants. Listen to this. Especially to the ones made with Abraham. Totally connected what was promised to Abraham. As the new and more excellent bond of friendship which God in the Messiah's time would enter into with the people of Israel. I'm going to read you something. The Levitical priesthood could not enact the covenant of peace Ezekiel mentions. It took a Melchizedek priest to enact this covenant of peace with the people. Isaiah 40 through 66 calls it a new exodus and connects it to the coming servant of Yahuwah and the inclusion of the Gentiles. Ezekiel calls it a covenant of peace and describes it as a time when God will cleanse them from all of their guilt and punishment. He creates a new heart within them and actually puts his spirit within them. However, it is Jeremiah who actually labels this coming new arrangement as the new covenant in Jeremiah. Elohim declares that he will make a new covenant with Israel. This covenant will not be like the old one that Israel broke. In its place, Elohim will put his Torah in their mind and in their hearts, and all those within the covenant will know God, and once again his people will be in close relationship to him. This new, new covenant, God declares, will be characterized by the forgiveness of the punishment. Does someone have their hand up? Okay. So, the phenomenon of the covenant of peace given by the Almighty is indicated in Numbers 25.12 and Isaiah 54.10 uh, and also Malachi 2.5. In particular, Ezekiel 34. It speaks of Elohim's promise to renew the covenant of peace for his people 
And Joshua 9.15 alone speaks of a humanly initiated covenant of peace wherein Joshua makes a treaty with the Gibeonite people not to destroy them, but to have them serve as laborers for the Israelite people. Now I need you to focus in on what I'm going to say next. This is very interesting. If the Messiah came to take away death from us, if he came to take away death and the punishment, they were uh, at enmity with us. They were, the, they, they were against us, right? They were the, this dividing wall. We had this separation because death was against us. When peace comes in, it is in the sense of the absence of military conflict. In other words, when the death sentence is no longer with you, when he comes back in his second coming, you don't have the death sentence of you, and you now have an absence of military conflict between you and the Almighty. It's gone. So who's going to get the military conflict? The ones who do not have the absence or who do not have the covenant of peace with them. They're still carrying the punishment. The, the punishment of the sin is still on them. They're bearing their sins. And so the covenant of peace is specifically for people that will not see military conflict between him and them. And that's huge. How many of you are glad we don't have to see military conflict? These passages, Deuteronomy Judge, Ecclesiastes, Isaiah, refers to the anticipated peaceful role of the messianic servant of Yahuwah. The unique messianic title, Prince of Peace, is found in Isaiah 9.6. He's the prince that's bringing the peace to remove the military conflict with the people. Because what do we say? It says in Leviticus 26, he says, we walked, in, uh, we walked contrary to him, and he walked contrary with us. Well, that contrary brings about military conflict, because if you're contrary to something, you're at war with it. This is huge stuff. So let's talk a minute about the Melchizedek priesthood. In Genesis 14, 18, Psalm 110:4, and then in Hebrews 5 through 7, we read about a man who is puzzling to many believers, this Melchizedek. In keeping with the significance of names in the Semitic world, this name is formed from Melech, king, and Zedek, righteousness, and therefore means righteous king or king of righteousness. While the precise identity of Melchizedek is unknown, his significance is unmistakable. First, we see his personage. Melchizedek was the king of Salem, that is, ancient Jerusalem, as most Jewish scholarship has always maintained. While some teachers think that Hebrews 7.3 implies that Melchizedek was some mystical character who had no parents, leading to the possibility he was actually pre-incarnate Messiah, the rendering of the Semitic Syriac version of the New Testament, early 2nd century, makes it clear that he did have parents whose father and mother are not written in the genealogies. Some ancient Arabic writers claim that his father was Peleg, the descendant of Noah, through Shem. But that, of course, cannot be verified by Scripture. And as we will see, in fact, there is a reason his parentage is unnamed. Second, his priesthood. Here is the key to understanding Melchizedek. While the ancient world was per, uh, permeated by paganism, there were some who worshipped the true Most High Elohim, which demonstrates that the knowledge Noah and his sons had of Elohim had not died out. While the priesthood of Aaron had a physical lineage and was hereditary, 
Melchizedek was not hereditary, which is why his parentage is not specified. Here we see then Melchizedek's priesthood existing before the Levitical system was even revealed, thereby pointing to something deeper, something beyond that temporary system, namely the Messiah Yahushua himself. Third, his permanence. Not only was Aaron's priesthood interrupted at times, like the last 2,000 years, but ultimately it ended entirely being fulfilled and replaced by the finished work of Messiah until he returns. In the true sense, then, the priesthood of Messiah was not directly connected with Aaron's, for while the Levitical system was temporary or could be interrupted, the priesthood of Messiah, which Melchizedek foreshadowed, is everlasting, as Hebrews 7 specifies. The key word of Hebrews is better, appearing 13 times. And Yahushua is indeed a better hope. Now, at this point, I would like to interject. Why would it be better? Why would his priesthood be better? Because it comes with the covenant of peace attached with it, that you can only attain the, the, the uh, separation from the military, military conflict by coming in contact with the one who bears the Melchizedek priesthood. He's the one that will bring the covenant of peace that we so desperately needed. That's the big part. And yes, a far better priesthood. So let us rejoice again in our great high priest and his eternal once-for-all sacrifice for all punishment and guilt. So let's take a look at the prophets. Anyone have any comments about that before we move on? So we're going to dig into Isaiah 46. Those who lavish... And so some of you that are new, what we like to do is we like to dig into the words and find out what it means so we get a better understanding and of what the Scriptures are telling us because it's been so misunderstood over the millennia. So 46.6 says, Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale hire a goldsmith. He makes it into gold. They bow down. Indeed, they worship it. So I'm going to dig into this idea of refining something, which is what this goldsmith does. So before leaving the word seraph, we should go a little deeper. This uh, word means to refine, smelt, or test, and describes the purifying process of a refiner who heats metal, takes away the dross. How many of you have heard the song, Refiner? Have you ever heard that song, Refiner? Should go, yeah, yes. You, you should uh, re listen to it. It's an awesome song. Takes away the dross and is left with a pure substance. In addition to Psalm 119, 140, we find it about 30 times, mostly in Psalms and the prophets. A derivative of this root, sorpi, refers to the actual tradesman, the silver or goldsmith who does the work. While that word actually appears only once, it is obviously even implied in serap, which itself is sometimes translated goldsmith. One of the major applications of this man's skill was that of fashioning idols. Idols were often first carved out of wood, then overlaid with silver or gold, which the smith would first smelt and then hammer and roll into sheets. Sadly, while the idols people fashion today are much more sophisticated, they are dead idols nonetheless, and will eventually, with their makers, just wither away, confounded to be dried up. The first occurrence of Sarah occurs uh, captures our attention, Judges 7-4. Gideon started out with 10,000 soldiers, but that was too many. For Elohim to display his power against 135,000 Midianites. 
So Elohim said, I will try them. And in the end, only 300 were fit for battle. Also, Isaiah 48.10 declares, Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. While that speaks specifically of God's purifying his people from their repeated rebellion and idolatry by means of the Babylonian captivity, it applies to us today just as strongly. So let us ourselves keep pure. Let us pray with the psalmist. Examine me, O Yahuwah, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart. Amen? Let that be our prayer. Okay. So I want to give you some words of comfort. Isaiah has some strong words of coming judgments, but let me give you some words of comfort in our portion. Isaiah 40, verse 1 through 66, 24, you have these three themes. Israel's release from captivity, totally associated with what Yeshua came to do for the northern kingdom. Remember, Yeshua quotes from the scroll. He says, you know, the Spirit is upon me. To, he's, he's called me to do what? Set the captives free. So, so connected with us that Isaiah is talking about is the work of, of, of our master. Release from a captivity. So when we're released from captivity, what's the next thing that comes? The future Redeemer. And what comes after the Redeemer comes? The kingdom. So the 23 chapters in the second half of Isaiah generally bring a message of forgiveness, comfort, and hope. This message of hope looks forward to the coming of the Messiah. Isaiah speaks more about the Messiah than does any other prophet. He describes the Messiah as both a suffering servant and a sovereign king. The fact that the Messiah was to be both a suffering servant and a sovereign king could not be understood clearly until Messiah came. Based on what Yahushua has done, Elohim freely offers forgiveness to all who turn to him in faith. This is Elohim's message of comfort to us because those who heed it find eternal peace and fellowship with him because he's the mediator of the covenant of peace. Can you say amen? So theme of Isaiah is this. Check this out. This is really interesting. First, we have the fall of Babylon. We've been talking about Babylon that has come to America, right? So has Babylon fallen in our hearts, in our lives, because we've come to Torah? Babylon has fallen, right? We're literally seeing that as it happened back in the day. We're seeing Babylon falling today. But what's the next thing that happens? As soon as, soon as Babylon falls in our hearts, what's the next thing that happened over in the time that that's happens here? The restoration of all of Israel. And that should give us such excitement. Because as we're watching Babylon falling in people's hearts, in people's minds, as we see people coming back to God in His Word, and Babylon is falling in, falling in their lives, then what happens is a restoration of all of Israel, just as it happened in the, in the previous time. And that's so encouraging. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Isaiah 46, 3 says, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. You have been born by me from birth, and have been carried from the womb, even to your old age. I will be wishwashy. I will change when Messiah returns. No. He's going to be the same. And even to your graying years, I will bear you. I have done it. 
and I will carry you, and I will bear you, and I will deliver you. I'm even glad you have promises like that to stand on. So Elohim draws a lesson, a lesson from this for Israel, for the remnant that remains. He has much as he as he as much as says, "You never carried me; I carried you from the time you were born, and I will carry you as long as you live." Elohim will not only take up the load and carry them and sustain them, but he will also rescue them, something that the idols and the, the gods that are per perpetrating this Babylonian system cannot do for themselves. They cannot do that for themselves, and that's huge, and they know it. We're going to transition to our Torah portion. Exodus 13.3 says, Then Moshe said to the people, Keep remembering this day. You were talking to me about that a while ago. This is important. What day is it he's telling them to remember? Huh? In which you came out of Egypt from a house of slavery, for by a mighty hand the Yahweh brought you out. So did, he, did they come out on the 14th or did they come out on the 15th? This is the day of unleavened bread, right? Remember unleavened bread. For by a mighty hand he brought you out from there. And leaven shall not be eaten, for on this very day you're going out in the month of new things, says the Septuagint. The month of new things. It's interesting that a, a new covenant comes at this Passover time. It's interesting how that stuff kind of happens, isn't it? For six days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the seventh day there is a feast to Yahuwah. You have a comment? Yes, go ahead. Regarding the, pa the passage you had previously, I keep remembering this day. Yes. In the Torah, there are six times where we're told to remember. The first one, Exodus 13, 3, and Deuteronomy 16, 3, which is our redemption. Number two is the Sabbath, Exodus 20, verse 8, which is the picture of our message. Number three is receiving the Torah at Sinai, Deuteronomy 4, um, verses 9 and 10, which is God's instruction to us. Number four is Amalek, Deuteronomy 25, 17 and 19, who's our enemy. Number five, the golden calf, Deuteronomy 9, 7, which is our weaknesses. Number six, God's punishment of Miriam, Deuteronomy 24, 9, which is God's authority. And then number seven, which Yeshua tells us in Luke 17, 32, is Lot's wife, which is our destiny. So the first six are showing us our past, and the seventh one, which Yeshua tells us to remember, is our future. Amen. Well said. Nice. So it is important to remember, and, and we need to remember to remember during this feast, this is important to remember. This, there's so much to learn here in this whole thing about the redemption and the Passover. It says, you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the seventh day is the Yahuwah's feast, is it the Jews' feast or his feast? His feast, yes. Verse 7, unleavened bread you shall eat for seven days. Anything leavened shall not be seen among you, nor shall you possess leaven in all your borders. And you shall tell your son on that day, saying, for this reason. And you say, what's the this reason? Yahuwah Elohei acted for me when I was going out of Egypt. That's important. 
He acted for you. And you know what? The master came at this time, and guess what the master did? At this time, during unleavened bread, he acted for you. That's why we have to remember it. He's coming back again. And if he's going to come back again, and all of Israel are expecting a, a, a future redemption, well, that can only happen at this particular time. This is when redemption takes place. He's going to act again during this time when he returns. Same thing. He doesn't change. And it shall be a sign for you on your hand and a memorial before your eyes in order that the Torah of Yahuwah might be in your mouth, but with a mighty hand Yahuwah brought you out. I think the word is yatza. I think is the Hebrew word for it, of Egypt. And you shall keep this Torah according to the times of the seasons from days to days is what the Greek says. Yes, go ahead. When it talks about the sign, the word in Hebrew is ot, aleph, vav, tav. Yep. Aleph is the first letter, tav being the last letter. Vav typically stands for and, so he is the alpha and the omega. He's the aleph, the tav, beginning, the end, the first, and the last. So he I, is he is the sign. I always have felt whenever the Yeshua said, I am the aleph and the tav, he was spelling the word. And so when you, you, you look at the aleph, vav, tav, it's the word ot. And so he's just saying, I'm the sign, is what he's basically, he's, he's spelling the word out. I'm the Aleph Vav Tav. But anyway, I agree. I, that's, I've always felt that way. So he brings us out. But it, you, 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 I'll get to you in one second, Barry. So I remember back when I was reading Deuteronomy chapter 6. And he's talking about, you, you shall write this on your doorposts and it shall be a sign. So I'm thinking, what, what's, what's the this he's referring to? When I looked at the context of what was being re referenced here, chapter 5 is referencing the commands. So he's talking about these commands are to be written on your doorposts, not just a specific verse, but the commands are to be written on your, your doorposts. So in this reference, what is it? He says, it shall be a sign. What is the it? What's the context here? I know you know because we, you were just talking to me about it. What, I gave you a clue on it. What's the theme of our, of our 20 verses here? Go ahead, Barry. Aleph Vav Tav, Aleph being ox or the Godhead. Uh, Vav being attachment like a nail and Tav being a cross. And the sign of the covenant. Yes, very good. Yes, right here next to you. What is the sign that we're supposed to put on our doorposts and our between our faces and our and our hands? It's his Torah. Yes. Scripture very clearly says that when we keep the Shabbat according to the way he said to do it, that's a sign between us and him yep. that we are his children. That and way. that's with all of Torah. And, and, and it says, I think, how it says we are, uh, keep, like I said, through keeping the Shabbat, it's a sign that we belong to him. It makes sense then that, that his Torah would be attacked. It makes sense then because, of course, the enemy would want to corrupt those who are, belong to Yahuwah 
So they try to convince them and lie to them and tell them, oh, you don't need to do this. You don't need to keep the Father's commandments. You don't need to be walking in these things. And that's why I just came to the realization, because like I was always wondering, it's like, why is it that the scripture says to guard the Torah? And this is why through walking it out, we also protect it and show the enemy. It's like, no, I belong to my father, Yahuwah. I do not belong to you. So you'll notice some when people get married, a lot of times, especially if they do a ketubah, they will put it right close to the entrance of their home. Well, you know, the Torah is a marriage contract. It's a marriage contract between us and him. He gave it to us. He said, I came down at Mount Sinai to wed them, although they did not want me. He came to take Israel as a bride. They, they broke it. They didn't, they didn't do what they were supposed to do. But this was the goal. And so his, his word is the marriage contract. I mean, when people get married today, even if it's not in a Hebraic style, they both exchange terms of the agreement. You know, the pastor says, you, you promise to love and to protect, da, 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 da. and he says, yes, you do this, and she says, yes. They've made agreement of terms. Well, the Torah is the terms of the agreement. He says what he's going to do, and we're saying what we're going to do. And it's posted so that we remember our covenant of marriage and all that come into our home remember the covenant. But this is talking about something in context in, the, in Exodus chapter uh, 13 here, that it shall be a sign on your hand and memorial before your eyes. i got something to share with you about that. So I'm going to tell you what is context. It's unleavened bread and firstborn. Unleavened bread and firstborn is the whole context of what's being said here. It shall be a sign on your hand and immovable before your eyes. Because with a mighty hand, with, what did the mighty hand do? It redeemed. The mighty hand redeemed. But whom? The firstborn. It's amazing. We talked about this last week. But who's the first? Who does he declare as the firstborn? Ephraim. He also says that Israel is his firstborn. So he's declaring who his firstborn is. And he, it, this is something he must do because it's, he owns them. He bought them. He paid a price for them as his. So, if you know uh, traditional Judaism puts the box on the forehead and that's what the sign they put in the box on their arm. So I'm suggesting maybe it's, let me say this first. So I remember traditionally in a mezuzah, it's, do, they, there's a few passages in the, in the mezuzah. It's, uh, and if, if you don't know, there's a traditional one back here close to the red alarm box. And then the one that Ralphie made once I had, mentioned what I think that it is. It's the, the, the commandments. So I, I thought, you know, I've got to find something that'll show me it was more than just a couple of verses in Deuteronomy that's, that's supposed to be written here. Because it says, you know, in chapter 5 what it is. It's the ten, 10 Commandments. So I thought, you know what? If they found Torah scrolls in the cave at Qumran, I wonder if they found some mezuzahs. Just a hunch, right? Maybe it was the Spirit leading me. So I Googled, and wouldn't you know, they found mezuzahs in the caves of Qumran. Oh, I'm, go I'm going crazy now. I'm thinking, oh my, I want to know what was on those mezuzahs. This is dating way back. Guess what it was? The Ten Commandments. 
Of course it is. That's the covenant that God made. That's what's on the mezuzah. So Ralphie started making it, and he did a great job, and they're awesome. So here's my thought. If, if it, we're talking about unleavened bread, he's talking about uh, redemption and unleavened bread, it shall be a sign on your hand and immovable before your eyes. What should I be putting on my forehead? Redeemed by Yahuwah. Because you know what? When he came and he got on that tree and took your curse away and he took the death penalty away, you redeemed that moment and you accepted his offering. You have been redeemed by Yahuwah. So just as it was good for them then at the redemption out of Egypt, it's good for you today because you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. My thoughts on it, just something to consider. Verse 13, everything opening the womb of a donkey, (laughs) you will exchange for a sheep. But if you do not make an exchange, you shall redeem it. Every firstborn of a human being among your sons, you shall redeem. I've paid a redemption price for my first son. If you haven't done it, I would suggest you do it. So here is this word, Greek word for redeem, and it's lutro, and it means to release, to liberate by payment of ransom from evils of every kind, external and internal. So this is interesting. In in these cases of redemption, the Redeemer was not a relative. We always talk about Yeshua being the kinsman Redeemer. It's not so necessary that he's a kinsman. Here's what's interesting. But the Redeemer is the owner of the property. And what does he say in Numbers 3.13? All the firstborn are mine. And on the day that I struck down the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified to myself all the firstborn in Israel from man to beast. They are mine. I am Yahuwah. He's the owner. And he has the right of redemption. The right of redemption. And you know what? Because he had the right, he came and redeemed you from the curse. He redeemed you from the death penalty. Because he had that right. Remember what Boaz did? They gave the first guy the right. He had the right. The first guy, he's got the right of redemption. He passes it up. It goes to Boaz. Boaz says, I'll take it. I'll jump on it. And he seizes the moment. Yes. Why are the beasts redeemed? Speak up. Why are the beasts redeemed? Whole other topic that... uh, (laughs) She's... You know, it's funny because uh, I talked to Tammy before the service. And we, and she probably went further with it than I did. I just didn't have the time to dig deep into it. But I had this thought in my, in my mind, donkey, there's got to be something else here. So I'm digging into the word, the Greek word and the Hebrew word, and I'm not getting anywhere with it. But so, and you, you might ask her, maybe she has a thought to share with you after, to be continued. She's still studying. <laughs> so, yes, I believe that there's something more than what the service is showing us about a donkey. Because it's like, donkey, really? I mean, what's that all about here? This is about, especially because it's an unclean animal, yeah. So there's something about this that we're not quite seeing, my personal opinion, because we're talking about the firstborn, we're talking about unleavened bread here, and you're throwing in a donkey? A donkey? So 
I, I'm suggesting, as she is, it's something else, but more study is required, okay? Uh, next time we get a chance to talk about it, hopefully. All right. So I want to dig into redemption. I talked about a week or two ago that we need to do more study on redemption. Here's a short little study on it. Redemption is either pada or ga'al. And so one Hebrew authority writes, whatever theory one may hold as to the possibility or probability of a divine intervention in human affairs, the Bible is pledged to the fact that such an intervention has taken place. That is an understatement. Elohim has indeed intervened, and how thankful we are that he did. No word underscores God's intervention more, in fact, than does redemption. The first important word here is padah, which is of immense theological significance. It was originally a word of commerce for paying a price for something to transfer ownership, such as buying an animal or even a slave. By the way, Israel is called slaves, right? To him. Amen? Yes, Barry, go ahead. I have a question. Sure. Okay. It makes sense to me, a firstborn human, you're not going to sacrifice, in fact, the the word Yahuwah says, it never even crossed his mind. So sacrificing an animal as to, to redeem a firstborn born son makes sense. But why sacrifice for an animal? It's, yep. it's the, where the confusion yep. is. That's why we're kind of scratching our head here. We've got to do okay, some more so research. Okay. Yeah, we're in agreement with you. Especially significant theologically is Numbers 18, 15 through 17, where the priest received redemption money in place of the firstborn son or unclean animal, all rooted in Exodus 13, 13 through 15, which we're talking about, where Padah also refers to the firstborn in Egypt. Therefore, as the psalmist writes, Into thine hand I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O Yahweh Elohim, of truth. For he redeems my soul from the power of death. Word here is grave, but I would submit to you that the meaning here is grave. The second word we encounter is ga'al, a specific word that is almost exclusively Hebrew and means not only to redeem, but to act as a kinsman redeemer. One authority well sums it up. The word means to act as a redeemer for a deceased kinsman. Was the northern kingdom dead? Yeah. So someone had to come and act as a kinsman redeemer to redeem the deceased relative, right? It's interesting. It means to redeem or buy back from bondage. Were we under bondage? Yes, we were. To redeem or buy back a kinsman's possessions. Had the northern kingdom lost possession to the land? Yep. So it applies to that too. To avenge a kinsman's murder. Does it apply to what Yeshua did? Yes, it does. To redeem, and you might say, well, how did he, how did he avenge uh, the murder? Well, what killed you? What was at enmity with you? The, the curse of the Torah, which is the, the divorce and the, the, the you must die. That had to go. And to redeem an object through a payment. His blood became the payment, right? So all of these apply with this redemption idea. 
So putting the two words together then, while Padah speaks of deliverance from bondage, Gaal speaks more technically of a kinsman doing the redeeming. Again, while Padah is used for the redeeming of the Israelites out of Egypt's bondage, Gaal is used of Boaz as the kinsman redeemer, a Leverite marriage in Deuteronomy. A wonderful picture of the Savior who is to come. Messiah is indeed our kinsman redeemer, our elder brother, the firstborn among many brethren, coming to our aid, paying our debt, and supplying our need. Finally, it is immensely significant that both these words are usually translated as lutro in the Septuagint, which means to release on receipt of a ransom. For it was Messiah who came to give his life a ransom for many, as Matthew 20, 28 testifies. You see how weighty it is and how significant it is as we dig through the words, how much more it means and how, it's, how significant what is being said that we probably passed over. So, would you stand with me? Did you have anything else to say before we, no? Okay. Stand with me, please. I want to leave you with this parting word. In light of the redemption from captivity that Israel witnessed in our Exodus story, and also the redemption from punishment and captivity we have witnessed by the blood of the Lamb, I would like you to consider this. I want to read this to you. A number of years ago, the most magnificent diamond in the world, of the history of the world, was found in an African mine. It was then presented to the king of a nation to embellish his crown of state. The king sent it to Amsterdam to be cut by an expert stonecutter. Can you imagine what he did with it? He took this gem of priceless value and cut a notch in it. Then he struck it one hard time with his hammer, and the majestic jewel fell into his hand, broken in two. What recklessness. By the way, if you don't know, he cut the nation of Israel into two pieces. Okay. What recklessness. What wastefulness. What criminal carelessness. Actually, that is not the case at all. For you see that one blow with the hammer had been studied and planned for days, even weeks, millennia. Drawings and models had been made of the gem, its quality, its defects, and possible lines along which would be split, and all had been studied to the smallest detail. Think of him looking at you and studying you and the plans of how he's going to get you to become this flawless gem from this thing that we're not, okay? There's, there's potential there. And the man to whom it was entrusted was one of the most skilled stonecutters in the world. Now, do you believe that blow was a mistake? No, it was the capstone and the culmination of the stonecutter's skill. While he struck that blow, he did the one thing that would bring that gem to its most perfect shape, radiance and jeweled splendor. The blow that seemed to be the ruin of the majestic precious, precious stone was actually its perfect redemption. For from the halves were fashioned two magnificent gems. Only the skilled eye of the expert stonecutter could have seen the beauty of two diamonds hidden in the rough, uncut stone as it came from the mine. Sometimes 
In the same way, Elohim lets a stinging blow fall on your life. You bleed, feeling the pain. Your soul cries out in agony. At first, you think the blow is an appalling mistake. Israel is in captivity for 200 years or 175, and it's very painful. But something's coming. He's about to bring a really interesting blow. But it is not for you are the most precious jewel in the world to Elohim. And he is the most skilled stonecutter in the universe. Someday you are to be a jewel adorned than the crown of the king. As you lie in his hand now, he knows just how to deal with you. Not one blow will be permitted to fall on your apprehensive soul except what the love of Elohim allows and is is destined for you. And you may be assured that from the depths of the experience, you will see untold blessings and spiritual enrichment that you have never before imagined. I will tell you this, that whenever the blow came to me, that everything that I had been taught in my previous life walking as a believer was not exactly the way it was understood in the Scriptures, it was a blow. It was very hard. It was tough to think that, what has happened? What happened to me? What, how, did, how could this be? But what has happened from that blow has brought about a jewel in me, one on fire for his word, way more than it was before. One that is seeking out every detail of the word to find and understand it. And one that wants to share with everybody and to worship with everybody the one true Elohim in spirit and in truth and no longer any falsehood or lies. No longer anything that's not the way it should be, but according to the way he destined it for my life. That's your king. And that's your redeemer who has redeemed you from the curse and from the death. He paid the price. Father, we thank you so much for this word today. We just are so thankful that you are the redeemer for us. That you are the one that came and paid the price for our redemption from bondage, from captivity from slavery to death and sin, for, for redeeming us from the curse and from the, from the divorce certificate that stood against us. We thank you, Father, that the blood of the Lamb took care of that. And that we now have this blessed opportunity to live this life before you in righteousness and truth, that we get to be the set-apart children that you have called people to be. And the enemy is so upset and so mad. There's nothing he can do about it unless we let him back in. We thank you, Father, for being that one, the redeemer of your children, the redeemer of the nation. We glorify and praise you for this word today. We magnify you and we lift you up, and we ask that you would continue to show us, continue to reveal to us how we're to walk out our lives before you. We ask this in your son Yahushua's name. Amen. Now we get to say Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.
Ryan for joining us. Thank everybody here. Have a blessed rest of your Shabbat. I wanted to say something to Donnie and Lisa. Raise your hand. There's a fellow islander here from Hawaii. You got to get to know her. So get to know her real well. Shabbat shalom, everybody. <laughs>